Welcome to Spelunking with Plato, a podcast devoted to conversations about liberal education, hosted by the University of St. Thomas's School of Arts and Sciences. Here, students and faculty are called through the light of faith and the Catholic intellectual tradition to ascend from Plato's cave, bringing others with them to a vision of the good and the life of human flourishing. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome Margarita Mooney to our conversation today. Um, Margarita is an associate professor in the Department of Practical Theology at Princeton Theological Seminary, where she teaches courses on the philosophy of social science and Christianity and the liberal arts tradition, among others. Margarita received her BA in psychology from Yale University and her MA and PhD in sociology from Princeton University. She also has been on the faculty at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Yale University, Princeton University, and Pepperdine. Margarita founded the Scala Foundation in 2016 and continues to serve as Scala's executive director. Scala's mission is to infuse meaning and purpose into American education by restoring a classical liberal arts education. She's published several books and numerous articles across a wide variety of publications, and we'll include links to some of those in our show notes. Um, Margarita, I think I first heard you speak as part of a panel at Harvard hosted by the Thomistic Institute. I think, um, I think Adrian Vermeule might have been there on that panel. Um, and then we met through, um, I think, Danilo Petronovich at AAI, Abigail Adams, um, and that was a seminar on, on personalism, which was a delightful time. And I think that was right before COVID broke out, or it was breaking out, but none of us knew it. And um, I remember um, that, that was around that time. So it was, a, but it was a rich weekend and um, it was, there were great conversations. And um, so welcome, it's great to have you here. Thank you, George. Um, um, so the theme of this podcast, the series, is liberal education, liberal learning. Um, sometimes we speak about it in very broad terms, and sometimes we approach it um, in a more focused way. Um, you're one of the few people that I can talk to that has a great grasp of it at both the, the macro level and the micro level. So I'm just going to ask you the obvious question, what in the world is liberal education? We, we keep going on and on about it on this podcast, but we rarely ever define it. Yeah, how do you understand liberal education? Liberal education is an approach to education that places student freedom at the center as both the means and end of education and also upholds that the human person is a particular kind of being for whom the study of certain subjects form the foundation for future knowledge. We could talk about what those subjects are in a moment, but I will say that sometimes it's actually easier to understand what liberal education is by asking what it's not or what it's different from. Okay. Liberal education is distinct from a purely skills-based education because as a human being, we're not just mastering techniques. There is a uniqueness to each one of us individually that has to be engaged with the art of making and knowing and doing. And so liberal education also says that whatever that capacity is, call it the soul or the heart or the spirit, that also needs to be educated. Um, Liberal education is also not an education that's very pragmatic. That doesn't have to be always thinking about the pragmatic consequences. Americans like to be pragmatists. We like to be doers, right? What is this going to prepare me to do in the world? This is what a lot of parents and a lot of students want to know about their education. And I want us to unpack on this podcast why, although that intuition has a, 
lead you part of the way to what an education should be, it should never fully, fully be what we understand of it. The pragmatic outcomes of education can't be understood as the true end of education without actually distorting what we mean by the human person. And frankly, as Jacques Maritain warned, a pragmatic view of education can very easily be manipulated by institutions to shape people towards a certain kind of communitarian, social, political goal and ignore the development of the human person that has to underlie any kind of order in society. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, yeah, so I think approaching it from what it's not is 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 very helpful. Um, how and if a person is willing to accept the fact that there are forms of education that go beyond what you've described, you know, wh where do you, yeah, where do you start to try to to address it directly? I mean, is it is it just a, yeah? How, how what are we freeing students for or ordering their freedom toward? Um, if it's if it's not going to be pure work, um, the total work state, or the accumulation of material goods, or even the performance of service for our society, what um, what what are we educating people for when we when we speak of liberal learning? Well, George, I think we are educating people to do something in the world, but we're doing that in a way which always emphasizes the uniqueness and the dignity of the person, which has to be rooted in the soul, because otherwise we're equating the value of a human life with what you do in the world. Now, one might choose to raise one's children in that way, right? But if you were to do that, you're essentially treating your child as nothing other than a producer and you're eradicating the unique gifts that that child might have, as well as not having a way to deal with what talents or skills the student might not have, right? So I think it's hard for modern people to understand that when we're engaging in education, we're also educating the spirit. But I would say that any parent or any educator or anybody who has spent time trying to lead the younger generation knows that you're engaging in a sacred act because in the art of teaching or passing on knowledge or skills or how to do something, you encounter face-to-face -face another human being who is unique and has a capacity for freedom, but also has a capacity for error, for a mistaken use of the reason, a person who can be deformed in the will, and a person who can harm others. So education has got to include some element of what used to be thought of in public education as moral formation, because it's that moral formation that guides and directs the doing towards an appropriate end. So this is interesting. So we, we can we can begin by saying what liberal education is is not, and that that's very useful. And then, I, but I like and I like very much how we sort of we didn't go to okay, what do you study? What books do you read? What courses do you take? But instead, you you, re, you really drew the frame around the human the human person, so and 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 an expanded vision of what it means to be human, the person we're educating, to include the moral dimension, to include um, the spirit or the soul. Um, so that's 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 a great angle of vision for liberal learning is to focus on on the that the human person that's being educated. Um, 
so what what are the features of that person? You've spoken you know, of some of them. Um, if, if someone were to ask you sort of what is the anthropology behind your, your view of liberal learning, um, would you expand on that in any way? What would you, how would you, would you articulate that? Well, I first began to ask myself this question when I was a graduate student in sociology. And the first book that I read, which I think addresses this question quite well, is John Henry Newman's The Idea of a University. Now a very well-known text. Um, and what I found so compelling there was Newman's argument that humans are particular kinds of beings who have God-given capacities to encounter nature through mathematics, through physics, through arithmetic, through kind of these basic foundational ways of seeing the world, right? Rhetoric, grammar, logic. And so what that tells us is that like all human beings have these, have these capacities and liberal education begins with the idea that all human beings are capable of learning because we all are endowed with these capacities. But as I think anyone who's been, well, anyone who's human realizes, right, that it's very different to, to learn through abstraction, which is what you do when you want to talk about immaterial reality, then it's very, it's very different than actually touching things and manipulating things and moving things. So basically human beings are sensory embodied beings, and we, we need to learn through all of our senses and through all of our capacities. And I think so often what happens in modern forms of education is that we've reduced learning to just a few of our capacities. And then what ends up Liberal education is both a holistic approach, but it's also an approach that gives us an idea of how to go to something elemental or something specialized without losing sight of the whole. And I think that's what Newman was arguing for in the idea of a university. We have specialized forms of knowledge that have their own approach to the truth, but none of that makes any sense if we don't have a holistic understanding of, of the truth that unifies all these forms of knowledge. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So I'm going to I'll just articulate this and you can, you can critique it or expand upon it or um, throw it out the window, whatever you want to do with it. So it seems like the, um, one, of the, one of the ideas here, a place to start um, for articulating what liberal learning is from this perspective is it's expanded in two ways. It's expanded in terms of the range of things we study, I'm thinking of Newman here. So it's that full circle of disciplines that includes theology and metaphysics, which the contemporary university generally ignores. Uh, but it, it's got a much, it's got a broader range of what you study, of what we study at a, at a, from a liberal perspective. But it's also got a broader perspective on the human person. So there are parts of what it means to be human that are taken into account that are typically ignored at, at, in most educational settings. So it's got both of those. And then a third dimension is that this kind of pivoting, if you will, between the part and the whole, constantly looking back and, and forth between a particular discipline um, or a particular subject matter, and, but then looking at that in relation to the larger, the larger scope. So you've got a broader view of the human person, you've got a broader view of what's knowable, and then you've got this ability, to, the habit of mind, to be able to pivot back and forth between looking at parts and holes kind of in a harmony. Does, does that sound right? Or would you elaborate on that more? Or what, what, would you, what would you say? Absolutely. I mean, 
I, of course, can't help but think of you, George, because you're a musicologist, right? But someone who performs music or listens to music, it's both the whole that impacts you, but it's also the particular parts. And sometimes certain pieces of that part stay with you longer. It kind of resonates with you, right? right? And so I think what makes an education seem satisfying to a student is both that you have a chance to go deep into certain parts, but that also you know how to connect those parts, right? So think of like the trunk and the tree, right? Without the trunk, you don't know where all these special, what, how all these specialized branches are relating to each other. Hence, a liberal arts education tries to give students a foundation so that when they encounter the specializations, they have a common base about how that knowledge relates to other forms of knowledge. And, and they have, as you said, that capacity to see the whole. Um, when we only educate for certain kinds of disciplines or skip over a part of the foundations, then people may have a really good technical capacity, let's say in one thing, but they really haven't developed their capacity to think through moral questions. So as I said to a group of engineers one time, I mean, you wouldn't want someone to build a bridge who hadn't studied, you know, physics and knew how to actually put something together. Well, if you want to think about moral questions, wouldn't you be better off knowing what the greatest minds of the last 2000 years have said? Um, and oftentimes we treat technical fields like science, and applied forms of mathematics as, you know, fixed forms of knowledge that we can master. And other sorts of knowledge are things we just dabble in because, it, I don't know, it it raises interesting questions, but there's no real truth there. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So, um, yeah, this, this is this is this is very, very helpful. Um, you've had a lot of experience both sort of reflecting on this theoretically having conversations with, with people, but also with students in the field, if you will. Um, so if, if the goal is to have, to educate students um, so that they can engage with all of reality um, and to educate the whole person, um, taking into account their freedom, their moral dimension, what is the means that connects these two? How, how do we get from the, the student understood broadly to wisdom understood broadly? What, what are the means that you've used that you found have been successful? And what do you think are being, what, what are the means that are being neglected primarily um, in today's education? Let me say two things, play and imitation. Okay. Why those two things? One, because play is a sign that we are fundamentally creative. We need to engage the imagination the beginning of learning is actually posing questions and curiosity. At the same time, I say imitation because it's become passe to talk about education as imitating a master or copying something. Right. Yet, in order to really learn how to write beautifully, how to do mathematics or how to make music, imitation has a place. And historically, a lot of education was apprenticeship. Right. You learn from a master. Not that you didn't play and have creativity, but that play and creativity was understood in relationship 
to the passing on of a tradition so that your creativity wasn't some sort of self-expression untethered from the past or untethered from material reality, but that your creativity and your play is an encounter with a tradition that makes that tradition living. So I don't think we can skip over the need for things that for someone like Paulo Freire or John Dewey, whose books on education sell so widely in schools of education, they don't have a lot of room there for imitation. It's a lot about, you know, for John Dewey, his image of the classroom is a giant experiment. And we're always tinkering with knowledge. Um, and anything from the past, we take it and we put it into the present. You know, whatever was good from the past is going to survive in what I create in the present. You don't need to preserve the past. Well, one artist I know outside of Princeton took John Dewey at his word and she took his book on education and she put it in the blender and made a poster out of it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Similarly, for someone like Paulo Freire, who wants to unlock our imagination to think about what our political social context could be, right. Right, there's no room there for understanding how we got here. He, he only uses the word transformation. The end of education is to change reality right. as if all of reality is something we can change. It's a subtle manipulation there. Right. Now, the word formation has gone out of style as well, because that seems to raise people's, you know, radars that you're going to have, you know, a nun with a ruler hitting you or, you know, some kind of a militaristic sense. Right. But I do think we need to have a combination of play and creativity with imitation and discipline. And anybody who tries to be a teacher and doesn't have a sense of how you get discipline or order isn't going to be passing on much knowledge to anybody. Right, right. Well, my undergraduate degree is in music education, so I did a semester of student teaching. Um, and it became very clear that there was a, an enormous disconnection between what was being taught in the school of education where I was at um, and the actual reality of the classroom. Um, and, um, and that being able to manage the classroom was, you, yeah, you have to have basic order and peace in the classroom, otherwise no learning is going to happen. So, well, and I like what you've said about this about imitation because, you know, um, we know that composers, what we would consider slavish imitation now probably, um, but would just copy the work of their teachers. Famous composers would copy the work of um, their predecessors just to sort of get the, the notes into their fingers, if you will. Um, and, uh, and then in the Renaissance, they would, they, would have, like, they would have commonplace books for music. So they would hear things that they liked and they would record those, those phrases or passages that they would then use in their own compositions. So I think the 19th century and romanticism really did a number on our, our sense not only of art, but also of education, this emphasis on originality. Um, but even what you said also there, I think um, about mentorship or uh, apprenticeship is helpful because Newman, you know, people often don't read all of his writings on education. They just read the idea of a university, which is fantastic. Um, but you had a, you were involved in the project to republish his um, works on, on Benedict as they relate to education. Um, and then he's got a work on uh, called The Rise and Progress of Universities. And if you read all three of those together, um, you really see how important um, influence is, right? The influence of the teacher on the student. Um, and that's as important, if not more important, than the actual lectures that take place. So that's a dimension as well. And that seems to be important because when you think about um, Plato's cave, I mean, someone has to go down into back into the cave and lead someone out. 
right? Um, it's not a solo project. So, um, yeah, th these are great. So this is, this is, it's great to pull all of these together. Um, and, you know, so I, I think these are, these are all elements, imitation and play. I, I, you know, I, you know, as, uh, it's Johann Heisingen book on play, Homo Ludens. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a classic. In fact, I just got through, um, discussing leisure with some of our honor students. And of course he was, um, discussed then as well. Um, how does that manifest itself at the level of, say, undergraduates today? How do you introduce play and imitation into the educational, um, sort of into the project that you're, you're carrying out? Look, most of my classes take place on a regimented schedule where students have really busy days. I may be their number four priority out of classes and I'm trying to get the best out of them that I can. I'm not saying I don't teach highly motivated, bright students. I do, but I teach modern students who right. are overscheduled. And what I have learned in my years of teaching is that if you can capture their imagination, and their love of the subject in the first few minutes or the first day of class, you'll have them for the rest of the semester. Mm. At times, like I did this week in class, in the middle of the semester, let's take a step back, let's look at the big picture, let's recover that motivation because I thought we had lost our way a bit. They responded wholeheartedly and renewed their enthusiasm. So this is Intuitively, I think what most master teachers do is we know how to spark the imagination and the love for learning in our students, because we know that if you got them there, then, then they will use their own freedom to engage their intellectual capacities and their imagination. Otherwise, you drone on and you bore them to death with useful facts or useless facts, but facts that they're not gonna recall when your class is over because they've been in this dry analytical mode. Right. Look, George, I also increasingly use humor because who doesn't need a little bit of humor right. these days? So I, you know, I tell stories, you know, my niece just made her first confession and she wanted to tell me about it. Mm. So, you know, I made up a joke about what I said in my confession and I, you know, I won't say it on a podcast, but <laughs> it was a childish thing that I did and I confessed it to the priest and she laughing at me and, you know, sure. she knows I'm not telling the truth, but it's funny. Yeah. And so what's happening? They're imagining me as a human being. Right in relationship with a child, they're loosening up and they're starting to see me, sure, as a master teacher, but as a person, as a person who's communicating things that I'm passionate about. Right. And I, again, I got to this point to study liberal learning and be able to articulate this because intuitively I just sensed that if the students connect with you as a human being, they're learning better. And I thought to myself, what is this? Nobody ever taught me that. People taught me how to write a curriculum, how to write an assignment, right. how to run peer discussion. Nobody ever taught me how important it is for students to connect to you as a human being. In fact, I was often told the opposite. Right. That it's better to have a distant relationship from your students because the personal relationship can somehow cloud your authority, can make them more interested in you than the subject matter. I understand that concern or those concerns. There does need to be authority and there do need to be appropriate 
boundaries. But too often, especially in higher ed, people see their professors as somehow superhuman, untouchable, unvulnerable. And it creates a kind of defensive mentality almost Hmm. as if what they have to say or what their own ideas are, are never going to match up. So you don't have an apprentice, you have a slave. Right. Right. Well, this is good. So I I think the idea that um, humor, you know, about thinking about play and imitation, humor is, um, is almost a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's an invitation to engage in something that I think it would actually probably describe as play. Um, and it, but it also leads into this idea of, of imitation as a kind of influence or apprenticeship because it makes you more human, right? And so those human bonds are, are real. And um, it's, the, yeah, there's no substitute for feeling connected to a teacher that, because in some ways that connection is the, is, is the, the path through which um, a kind of inspiration toward learning can happen too. Um, to where the teacher can inspire. But if you if you're fully disconnected in every way from your teacher, then it's those things aren't going to happen. Um, so, yeah, I think introducing humor and, and yeah, that's 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 fun. And the, those sort of um, uh, those personal connections um, are, are really important. Um, well, could you say just a bit just um, maybe how this plays out in the work of Scala? How does how does all of this this liberal education unfold? on the, in your work, in your work with young people through Scala? I started Scala as a nonprofit in 2016 because I wanted to revitalize culture through liberal arts education and a deep appreciation of beauty and wisdom. What I have done through Scala with, you know, my colleagues and my students is try to create experiences where liberal learning can actually occur. So I've done that through intensive seminars where we went to Oxford University and Ampleforth Abbey and learned about education sort of as we were living it in walking in the steps of John Henry Newman, praying with Benedictine monks. These kind of experiences almost epitomize what liberal arts learning can be. And I've tried from those experiences, which have, you know, the universal, let's say, to pick out pieces of it, which then students can imitate and bring into their own setting. So Scala tries to equip students themselves to know that whatever setting they're in, if they learn to live their life according to a regular schedule, maybe with some of the liturgy, the hours thrown in there, then they're going to experience what monks in the monastery experience, which is this this mind-body-soul integration Mm. rather than the entire day is dedicated to work. And if you get a few minutes out of that, you know, you're kind of lucky. So what I'm trying to do through Scala is both provide these intensive experiences away from your everyday environment, but always with a lens to, hey, you can imitate what's going on there and you can do better in the environment that you're in. And if you take these, if you take this approach of a contemplative, leisurely approach to knowledge that also includes imitation and mastery and learning from an apprentice, you will experience the spark of creativity and the love of learning. And guess what? You're gonna spread that spark to other people. Because precisely, as you mentioned earlier, John Henry Newman wrote about the Benedictine approach to education. And part of what makes the Benedictine approach to education, I think, so unique and so badly needed is precisely that I I think it 
is grounded on a sense of a spontaneous order that yes, there are rules and yes, there's a liturgical calendar and yes, there's a church that has authority, but the Benedictine way is about going back to the elemental aspects of faith and learning with the childlike trust in God that if we do the little things well, order will come out of that. And that's a very different way to get to order than by trying to make an educational program have a determined political or social outcome, which we hear so much about today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I, I want to, in our next conversation, I, I do want to talk more about this Benedictine approach, Leclerc and Newman. And, um, but it's, it's been great. We, this sort of 30,000 foot view of liberal learning, it, it's good to step back. And it was great to sort of hear, to hear your thoughts about these, these, these matters. And so we get a big picture of you, but um, we'll continue the conversation um, and, uh, and sort of go a little deeper into this, uh, this Benedictine approach and see what we might learn there. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.